This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. When I think of the perfect trout bum story, Justin Crump comes to mind. Justin fell in love with fishing at an early age before dedicating his entire life to the pursuit. In this episode of Anchored, Justin and I discuss how his willingness to go with the flow introduced him to a lifetime of adventure, a successful career, and even the love of his life. We discuss the highs and lows of working in the fishing industry, his company, Frigate Travel, chasing down rooster fish in Mexico, the importance of a fly's profile, and more. While I have you here, our Anchored community is growing and we'd love to have you be a part of it. We're currently revamping our entire membership and we cannot wait to announce the changes. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say this. Our new membership is entirely comprised of the guests from this show and none of us are holding back. The new layout starts at A and ends at Z, Z, depending what country you're in. I wanted to build a membership that I personally would pay for, one where you can learn as a beginner, but also as an industry pro. Want to hear the best part? This is the first online membership in the fishing industry that pays you to learn. Each step that you unlock comes with a series of points that have a dollar value, which you can redeem at any time. We're just in the final stages, and once we officially launch, prices will be going up. So if you've been thinking about joining at the current rate, which is only $4.99 a month, now is definitely the time. Head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com to become a member today. You'll immediately unlock our current membership and a handful of complimentary masterclasses, which will keep you busy until you're able to access the new and improved version when it's ready. Again, that's www.anchoredoutdoors.com and look for the button that says become a member today.
I was born and raised uh, around or just outside of Seattle, Washington in Edmonds, Washington, and grew up there with my family and lived there for most of my life until in, until college. For some reason, I always thought you were an Oregon boy. I didn't realize you were from Washington. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up there. I have like deep roots there. My, uh, I'm like third generation in, in the little town that I grew up in. I mean, my great grandmother was born there in 1900. Her dad had like a shingle mill or something, you know, in the 18, late 1800s. And so I have like super deep roots in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Cool. All right. So what about fishing? Did you come from a fishing family? Kind of, you know, I came from a family that really wanted to, to like do activities, especially with like a young family doing activities with their kids. But, you know, my folks are not really fishermen. They're actually kind of getting into it now, which is exciting for me. But, um, I mean, really like they, they took my brother and I, you know, camping and fishing like a couple times a year, starting when I was maybe five or six years old. And, okay. And so it was like, just something to go do with a couple young boys and we'd go with some extended family members and go to a lake somewhere in Eastern Washington or central Washington. And it was just the one thing that from a super early age, I loved more than anything. Was it fishing in general or fly fishing? Fishing in, in, in general. I mean, I just, everything about it, I was just totally captivated by it. And like, I, I grew up like playing other sports and I was never really good at any of them, but like I, you know, my dad coached the the like little basketball team and I played baseball and, you know, tried all these things, but like, but fishing for some reason was just the one thing that totally stuck with me. I mean, I had subscriptions to every fishing magazine, you know, fly fishing and I mean, conventional tackle. I mean, I, I had a subscription to in fisherman magazine probably when I was like eight years old and had it for like the next 10 years. And I mean, all I did was like read about bass and walleye and all these things I could never go fish for. And it was like totally, intriguing to me. It sounds so weird to say it, but is that what you wanted to be a professional angler? I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to be. I, I was like, just, I, I wasn't like super motivated, like in school or like, it wasn't that I wasn't motivated, but I also, I didn't like have like any like major goals, uh, in like what I wanted to be. Um, and I, and really it wasn't until like I got into college that I had like the full freedom to be able to you know, fish whenever I wanted to fish and that kind of stuff. And that's when things probably really ramped up the most. Um, yeah. And I, I, I actually ended up, so I was pl kind of planning on, at least I didn't really have a plan, but I was just kind of more or less planning on just going to like junior college, like after high school, like I, I got okay grades, but never really like applied myself that much. And um, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to like live at home for a little bit longer and go to junior college and then really half or three quarters of the way through my senior year of high school, a buddy's like, Hey, so um, I'm going to apply to the university of Montana and uh, you only have to have a 2.0 to get in. And I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. I never even thought I could have options to go anywhere or do anything, you know? And I remember I went home that night and I was like, Hey mom, like my, my parents were in bed and I was like, Hey guys, I think I'm going to apply to the university of Montana. And they're like, uh, okay, honey, <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, you know, good luck. I mean, we don't, we don't really have any money for you, but you know, go get them. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I got in cause I barely had a 2.0. And, um, and so that was kind of the first time where I was like, man, I, I could, I could go somewhere where there'd be some good fishing. And it was like, I'd been, you know, I had fly fisherman magazine subscriptions my whole life. And so again, like the same way I was reading about bass and walleye and catfishing in the Midwest, I was like reading about you know, Rocky mountain trout fishing. And it was like super exciting to go to a new place and 
and go do that. So I went there for my freshman year of college and, and because my parents didn't have any money to, you know, uh, they, they didn't have much money saved for me to go to college. I, uh, I was going to school part-time so I could get my in-state residency. And so that meant I just fished every day. In Montana. Yeah. Were you fishing for steelhead in Washington at that yeah, point? So I, so I grew up, so I, I got into steelhead fishing because my family was, was way more of a skiing family than a fishing family. And so I, as a kid, like my, my folks would take my, my brother and I up to Stevens Pass and we'd drive up Highway 2. We'd go right along the Skycomish River. So I, I remember just like, again, being like this really intrigued little kid and we'd be driving along the river in the wintertime and I'd look over and I'd be like, what are those people doing, Dad? And he'd be like, oh, those, those guys are steelhead fishing and they'd all be lined up like near the mouth of the Sultan River. And I was like, I want to go do that. And he's like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like, because it's cold, you know, and it's just snow on the ground and like, and, uh, and, and so I just kept on bugging him and bugging him. And I think when I was like probably around 12, he's like, okay, let's, let's see if we can go steelhead fishing. And so he uh, started calling around buddies of his and, and just to see if anyone knew how to go steelhead fishing because he sure didn't. And we didn't have the gear or anything. And, and we found a buddy that offered to take us out. And actually the first day I ever went steelhead fishing, I, I hooked a steelhead and like lost it, like right at the beach. And it was like, again, like the best thing ever. So that kind of got me started in steelhead fishing, but, but realistically, like I did it like in middle school a little bit. And it was just, just whenever my parents could take me, especially them not being fishermen. Um, it was like, my dad hated it. Like whenever we would go, he would just freeze and then not catch anything. And he's like, what are we, (laughs) what are we doing here? Um, and then, and as I got into high school, I started skiing a lot more and I ended up teaching skiing. And so kind of steelhead fish less and less. It's funny because with steelheaders, they either totally have their lives ruined and they need to go to school where they're steelhead or, you know, they, they can live without them. And I didn't know with you if it was something that you absolutely had to have or not, or yeah, or if, you know, you were fine catching trout. So it sounds like Montana was still able to lure you away 2.0 and trout. Well, and it, it really just lured me away temp- temporarily. Because I just, I only spent my, my freshman year there. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I spent my freshman year there. I was only going to school part-time, fishing full-time. And like that summer, I was like, man, I I don't know if this is the, like the right, like I, I just like had this like brief moment where I was like, man, may, maybe I really should like focus on an education. And so I, I had uh, went and visited some friends in Bellingham and they're like kind of hung out with them for a weekend or something. I was like, you know, this actually might be a better fit for me. And I thought, because I really had, like later in high school, I hadn't really been steelhead fishing that much. So it just hadn't been tempting me. And so I thought, well, maybe if I move to Bellingham, I can focus on school. I'm not going to have this like constant temptation with fishing all the time. And it's going to, you know, I'm going to be able to, you know, get somewhere. And uh, (laughs) turns out there's, there's all kinds of fishing to be done everywhere all the time. So, uh, so I ended up going and moving to Bellingham. And that's really when my steelhead fishing addiction, passion, whatever you want to call it, really, really started up. And uh, yeah, before you know it, I was like, you know, driving three or four days a week, you know, down to the Skagit, which is like not a short drive for, for, you know, day trip fishing. Um, but, but uh, yeah, that, that's when things really, really ramped up. Okay. So what starts happening in your head? Because when I think of fish bum, I think of you and not in a derogatory way. I've, I've, you know, obviously you're, you're smart and you're organized and all those things, but 
you clearly have a pro- have a problem. Like you love, love fishing. Oh yeah. So at w- at what point were you like, okay, you know what? I, I've I've gone. I've tried the whole school thing, but I still want to do this as a career. Yeah. So so really, like it just so literally, it is like a fish bomb story because I'm in school and I'm working at, at a tackle shop, and um, somewhere in there, Kate and I end up end up meeting, and that's a whole another story. But but we. Uh, I'm working at this tackle shop and this is like, you know, this is early 2000s, you know, Facebook's barely a thing. It's MySpace. There's fish, you know, there's forums. And so, and so I had come to know a number of these guys through the, uh, through WashingtonFlyFishing.com, that forum. Mm. Right. And so, and so I'd like fish with, with a number of these dudes. And so I got to know Ryan Davey through, through Washington Fly Fishing. And so we had, you know, fished together a number of times and, you know, done some different things and gone to some parties and all these different things. And so they had just him, Ryan and the guys had just come back from Argentina, uh, filming the first trap bum. And so th- I'm trying to think exactly how this went, but, oh, I know what it was. So I had, I had transferred from the, the University of Montana, moved to Bellingham. I was going to Wacom Community College took me like three more years to get my associate's degree or something. I mean, just like just taking forever to get anything done. And I actually had been accepted to Western Washington university. And I think I was going to start in the the next fall. And so I ended up having a, a spring off of school just by the way the school schedule was. And also I had been working at this fishing and hunting store called H and H in Bellingham. And I was working there and I was like, you know, super part-time, you know, getting one day a week, two days a week. And there's kind of an, an interesting thing. And there was two owners and there wasn't a lot of communication between the two. So I would like show up to work on a Monday and that, and that owner would be like, Oh, we actually don't, don't need you today. Like I'm, I'm here, you know? And, and so, okay, sounds, sounds good. And just kind of low key me was like, I guess I'll go fishing or whatever, you know? And, um, and so that kind of happened more and more. And so knowing that I was going to have the spring off of school, I, and really not having a great job, I like temporarily moved to Seattle to live with some buddies and go work for this uh, like seafood processing company that has a boat yard in Seattle. Cause I'd been going to Alaska, like starting in high school, commercial fishing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I started commercial salmon fishing when I was like my junior year in high school. And I mean, I, in fact, I like, I don't think I even like walked down my, uh, like, I don't think I even like went to my high school graduation because I was uh, herring fishing in Bristol Bay spring of my senior year. Anyway, so I had connections within the seafood industry. And so I was temporarily working at this in this boatyard. And, and I remember talking to, to Orion and he's like, hey, man, well, um, we're going to be in New Zealand. If you want to come to New Zealand, that would be really cool. And so I was like, OK, I, I think I can do that, you know, but I'm not sure, you know, like I never again, like the same way I never thought I could just go to Montana and go to school there, go fish there. I was like, well. I'm going to maybe go to New Zealand now, you know, like it just, it was totally out of my wheelhouse as like a, you know, 20 year old or however old I was, you know, or 21 year old. And, and I remember making this call to the fly shop I was working at and it was like on my lunch break, I'm working in this boatyard and I talked to the assistant manager and I was like, Hey man, just, I, I hadn't made my decision on if I was, if I could go to New Zealand or not. Cause it just felt like, I mean, I still do have these commitments and Called up on my lunch break and the guy goes, yeah. So I was like, Hey, just, are are you guys going to need me anymore? Like, I really want this job, but like, I, I kind of need to know, you know, what's, what's the deal and go, Oh, well, you know, we actually hired this girl 
And, um, and so I just don't think that we're going to need you this, you know, she's working out really well. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think if you have something else you can do, you know, you might as well just keep doing that. So, so that was Kate, but I hadn't met her yeah, yet, right. right? And I'm like, who is yeah. this person that is like working at at this shop that like basically just stole my job? You know, like I've been like you know fishing my whole life, and I'd now worked at like three different fly shops, and uh, it was it, like at this point that things had become like a full like obsession, you know. And and uh, I was like, okay, sounds good. And so that really opened me up to, and gave me the freedom to to go do something. And so I called up Ryan. I was like, hey, are, are you serious? Can I really come to New Zealand? He's like, yeah, dude, buy a ticket. And so I went to New Zealand and and joined up with Brian and Ryan and Chris and and uh, spent a, mom, a month with them fishing and filming on the South Island. And it was like totally life-changing. And that that's what really set the course differently for me. You know, so. how did that happen? I mean, those guys were like the dream team. Everybody wanted to be invited to go hang out with those guys. Can we explain for people listening what they were doing at the time? Because it was, it was change. It was changing everything, wasn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. They were yeah, was, making cool fishing movies. Totally. Yeah. Like when we, when I worked at the fly shop with, with Kate, like we had the Trout Bum Diaries one just like on a repeat on the counter, you know, and people would just walk in. These, these old guys are just like, what's that? You know, and they just kind of stand there and look at it and they're like hearing this music and they're kind of wondering what's going on. And then before you know it, they're just like, you've got like four old dudes just like, you know, glued to the computer watching this, you know, these, these young guys, you know, fly fishing to, to, to music. And it, it, it really was a, it was a, a, a different take on, on media. And it was, it's like totally commonplace now. And I was just actually, I saw a RA Biotti a couple nights ago and, and we were just kind of reminiscing about when all of this was starting, it was so hard. Like the technology had was like just barely existing to where you could actually film something where the quality was halfway decent, but it was still terrible compared to, you know, what we have now. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, these guys were going out with, you know, like handhold cameras shooting to tape and just, filming everything they possibly could in really cool places for long periods of time and then trying to figure out how to edit and put together a, you know, loosely like loose knit story or, you know, a timeline of what they were doing to like really horrible uh, stock music. But, but it was so much fun. It, like it, it really was, was exciting. And uh, yeah, I remember getting back from New Zealand and, and it's like, well, that was, that was really fun. And then trying to put, put stuff together. And at that point I was not, involved in the, in the company really at all, other than I was able to join on that expedition. Um, but I spent, you know, I visited the guys a couple of times during the editing process and it was just blown away watching, you know, watching them then work on, on the project and stuff. And, and I guess it was, I don't know exactly when it was, but I think it was the following fall or like late summer. I was up in Alaska. I was talking with Chris and he said, Hey man, I think, I think we're going to be able to get like a investor and we're going to take this to the next level. And, uh, and he, said, he said, so, you know, if you want to come and join, you know, we're, we're all going to be moving and we're all, you know, we're going to have an office and we're going to be able to really turn this into a real thing. Because at, at this point, like there was a lot of, uh, like a lot of interest was, was really you know starting to happen. Like when the guys filmed the first video in Argentina, like, I mean, there were some people that threw in a little bit of money, you know, 
like hundreds of dollars maybe and like a little bit of gear. But the way they, they filmed everything is like they shot all this different stuff with hopes that they could maybe, you know, get some sponsors afterwards. Um, it's like just like total bum, uh, you know, budget. And we kind of had the same thing in, in New Zealand. We had like a, a little bit more, like a few more resources, but still like we were doing it for, for absolutely nothing. And, and, uh, but it was definitely gaining some momentum. And so Chris was like, Hey man, if you want to, if, if you want to move down to Southern Oregon, I think we're going to do this. And, and so I got, uh, I got back from Alaska and I was supposed to start school and, and, and I was like, okay, let's do this. Why am I going to go to school if I can, go just travel around the world and make fishing videos. Like what, like what am I going to school for? So I, so I just did it. I just moved to Southern Oregon. And um, at this point, Kate and I had kind of barely started dating and she's like, what you're moving to Southern Oregon. Like, I'm like, yep, I'm going to do this. And so we eventually worked that out. Uh, But yeah, I moved, I moved to Southern Oregon and and started working for this media company. And like the, the guys had, previous year had done like a really short like film tour with the, with the first um, trap home diaries video. And so we had plans to start this film tour and it just kind of set the whole thing into motion. Yeah. Cause the film tour didn't exist at this point. I mean, this, th- that was all part of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So wait, so when did AEG get involved then? So a- AEG started the film tour. Okay, so so Chris owned Trout Bums. Yep. So so it was it, so originally it was Chris and Ryan and Brian, and and then and then I came in, um, and then when I came in, Ryan what came out. It was this deal with with this new partner, um, and so then it was, but but then actually before that, we had we had done Mikey. What's say that again? Well, was Mikey before or after you were in there? So Mikey was before and Mikey was just involved in the first film. And he was really like, yeah, he he was in, involved in, in the first film. He, you know, he, he traveled with the guys and filmed with the guys and then, and then did some editing of, 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 of the first film with them. By the time we went to uh, New Zealand, he was no longer involved. Gotcha. It was so AEG is the new partner. So the new partner was this other guy. I can't remember his name now, but it was, it was like one of Chris's family members. Um, and he owned another business and he thought this would actually be a really good partnership where I could partner with these guys. He owned this, like, uh, this rafting company in Southern Oregon as like a side business. And so, and so he thought, you know, if I could team up with these guys, they can help promote some of my, uh, launch days on, on the lower rogue. And then they have some cool stuff going on. He also owned a marketing company and, and, uh, and so, you know, what ended up being really cool having him on board is that he really did like teach us how to run a business um, because, yeah, we didn't know anything about running a business. Um, so, mm-hmm. so he helped us just legitimize everything and, you know, get things going. But I think like I, I was involved in like the first kind of mini film tour that first winter and we traveled around. I think we did like 13 stops and just, you know, slept on couches and it, what we had, it was a, Trapum Diaries Volume Two, New Zealand. We had what else do we have? I know we had one of RA's things in there. I think that was the one, and I think that was when we, when uh, Running Down the Man came out. It's all kind of a blur now, but it was like right when there was a, a couple of different films that had all popped up at you know basically the same time, or maybe that was when the uh, that uh, Black Canyon one. Anyway, 
I, I remember being at one in Whistler and it was, it was heavy fish bum. So it would have been one of the first ones mm-hmm. and it was so cool back then. I mean, they're still really cool, but I just remember being in that venue and it was, it was just the coolest thing. Yeah. You know, we'd never seen it before. It was like what we'd seen in snowboarding, but we were watching it in fishing. It was just, I never thought that we'd be where we are today. Cause do you remember back then it was like, if you could capture the fish jumping, everybody erupted, right? The whole theater were just, whoa, there's a fish jumping. And now with everyone having iPhones, cause this is before we had cameras on our phones. But, um, yeah, it was, cause even when I, I remember when I had met you and I met you actually on the Thompson. Yeah. Remember <laughs> Kate was, Kate, I don't think Kate was ready to announce that you were her boyfriend at the time, but we, we had met you at, I had met you at the Hilltop. Mm-hmm. So this would have been, how long have you and Kate been together for? We've been together for 15 years now. Yeah, because that sounds about right. It was a long time ago. And I remember finding out you were part of the fish bombs and I was like, oh, he's a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it really was. It was a big deal back then. Okay. So you're doing all the film tours. I didn't, I didn't realize you were involved in that. So you're going to all the venues and what are you doing? Just making sure everything goes smoothly or are you just making sure it's a good time? Yeah. Kind of all those things. I mean, like we, like there was like a, re- there was a small amount of people that knew what we were doing, but like we would, you know, we would like rent a theater, you know, so we would rent a theater out somewhere and then we had to figure out how to fill seats, you know? So like, I remember like literally like driving from venue to venue and, you know, we're calling fly shops and we're like, you know, trying to get a hold of, you know, like newspaper writers and sending out press releases, just anything that we could possibly do to get people to these theaters, you know, or like, you know, getting an, an ad on the radio or whatever it was, because people like there wasn't a big enough internet presence. There was there wasn't social media, you know, in the in the way that it is now by you know e- like not even close. So yeah, do, just doing all the things and then you know setting up some tables and taking tickets and making sure that our you know DVDs would would work and the you know with the projector and the sound system and all that kind of stuff and. Um, I remember it being so like so stressful every time because like we totally did not have it dialed in, but uh, but we, we were trying really hard and like every time you like you it would you would play it like like oh man, I, I hope people like this. I mean it was like it, it, yeah it was, it was a super fun time, but like definitely like staying on couches uh, at every venue. I mean we had no money to like get hotels or you know any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when did you start guiding? And why did you choose to do commercial fishing over guiding? Mm. I'm always curious about that. Yeah, so so I really had no interest in becoming a guide, like, but it just kind of happened. Um, so I, I grew up, like, all my family, or a lot of my family was involved in the commercial fishing business like in one way or another. Like, my dad had worked for a commercial fishing supply company. His brother worked for a commercial fishing you know, competing commercial fishing supply company. Their other brother worked for a company that sold like rope and all this kind of stuff. And so, so I just grew up and like my great uncle, my, my dad's uncle, um, had been a commercial fisherman from like the sixties to the early two thousands. So I just grew up in it. And so like all grown up, I'm like, Oh dad, I want to go fishing. I want to go commercial fishing. And they're like, my dad's like, uh, why don't you go to college or why don't you do something else? You know, like I've just, I've watched so many of my friends, you know, make and lose fortunes and, you know, make and lose families and all these different kind of things. And, um, and so, and so that's, that's how I got into it. 
but the, the cool thing was like that got me to Alaska, like that got me to Bristol Bay. So like, like where, where we live in, in Alaska now in, in King Salmon, that's the first place I, I ever flew into, uh, when I was 17 years old or, or 16 years old, you know, in, into the airport there. Uh, so it's, you know, crazy to, to be coming back all these years. And so after, so I, I, I commercial fished for a couple of years and then in 2000, in 2001, 2000 and 2001, if you re- might remember, that was when there was a really big influx of farmed Atlantic salmon. You, you go to the grocery store, there's farmed Atlantic salmon everywhere. There's these beautiful fillets that are available year round. And so the wild salmon market was just totally taking a nosedive. So in like 2000, I think we were paid 65 cents per pound for, for sockeye salmon. And like in the mid nineties, it was up to like over $2 or so two fifty a pound. So it totally crashed in 2001. We made 35 cents a pound. So there was just no money in, in commercial salmon fishing. So all these fishermen were going, what do I do? What do I do? And, um, and so I was actually wondering after a couple of years, if I was going to keep, was going to keep doing it. Cause I, I really did love the work. It was like super hard, but it was like a great summer job. You know, like all my friends are working at like McDonald's or something. And I'm like going up to Alaska by myself and we're kind of boat with these derelicts and like, you know, doing, you know, adult stuff. And, uh, and, and so I really wanted to, to keep doing it, but also like my captain's like, look, man, if you don't want it to keep doing this, like I can't make any money. You can't make any money. Like I wouldn't blame you if you want to do something else. And so I actually had taken a job I remember I, I went and interviewed with this guy. I'd taken this job actually to be a deckhand in Southeast on a, a sport fishing charter. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll shift into this and I'll you know, maybe get into the sport fishing side of business. And, and so I just interviewed and I just accepted a job. And like a week later, I get a call from my dad. And he says, Hey, so the guys at, at the seafood company that I'd worked for a little bit as well, um, that the one I ended up working for before I went to New Zealand, this is before that, but he said, they just called me up there. They're trying to get your information. They have a job in Dillingham in Bristol Bay and uh, to work in one of their offices. And so you, sh- you should give these guys a call. And I think it's, it's a pretty cool job. And so I called them up and they said, yeah, we have this job. You work in this office and you're like, it's not a fish plant office or anything. You just, it's a fisherman support office. You help fishermen out. You know, it's a, it's a guaranteed, uh, you know, paycheck, you know, there's, there's no risk of how much money you're going to make. And, and so I was like, well, Bristol Bay, like I can, if I can get back to Bristol Bay, that might mean that I can like fish myself up there. And so, and so that, so I ended up calling the guy back on the, on the charter boat and said, Hey, look, I'm sorry. I, this other job came up and I really want it. And, um, and so that got me back to Bristol Bay where I really wanted to be. And so I, I spent five summers working working for the seafood company. And like by the time I left there and then ended up going and working full time with, with AEG, I, I had my own truck. I had a, a raft up there. I had a jet boat up there and it was all just for my own fun. And like, I mean, I, I would work for, for like six weeks during the commercial fishing season. And then I'd spend another month basically taking all the money that I just made. And then I would do, float trips. And I was just starting to kind of think about wanting to become a fishing guide. And so I thought like, Oh man, I would really love to like start my own like rafting camping kind of business. And so, and so I, for a couple of years, I would just have people like, like friends or acquaintances come up and I'd say, look, here's, here's how much this, 
this trip, like here's what it's going to cost, you know, for us to all like split this trip. And so I just basically go spend a month in the field floating and um, jet boating around. And like, I never priced the trips accordingly. Like I like, Oh yeah, it's going to cost $1,500 or whatever. Like it would always end up costing me way more money and stuff. And, um, but that's really what kind of got me thinking about it. Coming up, Justin and I talk about Mexico, fly profile, lodge life, and more. Again, head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com and sign up for our annual premium pass while the price is still low. I'll be ready and waiting to welcome you into our amazing community. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking at the lives of professional anglers, the one thing that's common with most of them is a really supportive spouse. And it's so rare to have a spouse who can do it with you. So I think you guys have a really incredible situation and something for people who don't know who we're talking about, Kate um, Taylor, Kate Crump now, because you're married, is this absolute badass of a legend. <laughs> She's just this incredible angler and guide, conservationist, um, I mean, you guys now own a travel company together, forget travel, which we'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, so I'm just trying to put it all together. So when you started guiding, was it the sort of thing that you guys were talking about guiding together or did you start guiding first and, and you kind of merged lives later? Yeah. So, so actually, so, so she, so when I moved to Southern Oregon, she stayed in Bellingham and, and was still working at the shop. And right after I got down there, we struck this new partnership agreement and the, uh, and, and our partner that owned this raft company was like, Hey, look, we would love to open a fly shop here. This, this, this would be a great space, a great place. We have this retail space. We have this raft company. Let's put a fly shop in. And so I was like, Hey, Kate, you know, why don't you come down around this fly shop? And everyone was on board with that. And so. Um, so, so she ended up hanging out through the winter in Bellingham and we did, we were, you know, we're just having a long distance relationship. And at this point, I, I had gone to Alaska for the summer and then now I'm in Southern Oregon. And so, you know, we were apart for like almost a year. And so she finally came down to go run this, this new, uh, fly shop. And she got down there and like a week after she got down there, the, the manager of the rafting company, the other part quit. Now she gets thrown into that role. The fly shop immediately gets kind of scrapped and then she ends up working there for the summer and it doesn't go great. I mean, she's like, you know, new in, into this role. There's all these established people that have been working there and it's, you know, she's the manager, but they have all this experience. And so it didn't really work out that well. Fast forward to the next winter, a buddy of ours from that. I went to college with in Bellingham 
who had just spent the last two or three years living in Bristol Bay in, in King Sam and Naknek was teaching there. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. And was guiding there. Still, he was like, Hey, look, uh, I'm kind of in between things. You, you, would you guys mind if I came and crashed on your couch for a couple weeks? He ends up living on our couch for like three months and I'm off fishing. I think I was actually that spring I was in BC. I was still fishing in BC and he starts talking with, with Kate and Kate's like, I need to do something else. This, this whole thing is, isn't really going all that well. And so he's like, well, why don't you come to Alaska with me? And she's like, really? She's like, yeah, like you're a great fisherman. Like you, you could be a guide. And she's like, I could be a guide. And he's like, yeah, let me call, call my boss. And so his boss is Nancy Morris line. Nancy. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. So, so he calls up Nancy and is like, Hey, Nancy, um, you think that you would hire my friend Kate? And, and he's, and she's like, yeah, sure. So, so I, I, I'm in Northern BC, like out on the coast. I call Kate on the sat phone. I was like, Hey, how's it going? Just, just checking in, you know, it's springtime. And uh, she's like, yeah, it's uh, going really well. Um, I'm going to go guide in Alaska this summer. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go be a fishing guide in Bristol Bay. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, Dan talked to me about it. And I talked to Nancy and I'm, I'm going to go do that. And I was like, well, okay. I, and I started like, adding up the the days in my head and I'm like, well, so I'm going to be up here for another month and then I'm going to be down there. I'm going to see you for like two weeks and then you're going to be gone for, for uh, four months. She's like, yep. So like to go back to the like whole like supportive spouse thing, like we had like the kind of stereotypical like situation, except like role reversal. Right. So like now I'm like, I ended up spending the summer down South and then she's up in Alaska. So, so, so she actually ended up guiding um, a year before I did. Yeah, because you ended up going back. You ended up going up and guiding with her up there, right? I did. Yeah. So the following, she, year. she loved it. She loved it right away. I remember chatting with her, and she was exhausted, but trying to connect with her when she was up there, and she she just immediately it was like Kate was made for that. A hundred percent. She was like totally made for it. She was learning something new every day, getting around jet boats around. She was great with people, and uh, and she's like super fishing. So she was like, yeah, immediately fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. So you guys start guiding together in Alaska. Now, when does Baja Mexico come into play? Because you spend a lot of time doing the rooster thing, right? For sure, yeah. So, so, so that next year, so, so she spends the summer in Alaska. She comes back. At this point, things are kind of uh, getting kind of shaky with it with AEG. We have this this new partner, and that relationship's kind of coming to an end. And they're sewing fish into your mattress that made in my mattress. <laughs> it's a whole, it just ends up, it, 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 it all, it all ends up with, with us all like uh, resigning because of, of, of the way things are going. And so, and so we all resign. I get served a like a half a million dollar lawsuit and it's, it's, a, it's a total mess. And so, and so we all leave and like, I have nothing like literally I've like $0 and what am I going to do? We all quit and I have nothing. But the spring before we had gone just for like a weekend down to Southern Baja to go shoot a TV show. And when we were down there, we we fished with a guy named Jeff to Brown and, and Jeff was like, Hey man, so if you ever want to come down, like I'm always looking for guides and you know, like I can, can give you some work. And I was like, Oh, thanks. Thanks Jeff. But you know, I've got this gig going on right now, but you know, I really appreciate it. So when this all happened, like, that one of the first calls, like the first week of January was like, was, was to Jeff down there. I was like, Hey Jeff. So were you serious? Like if, if, if I show up in Mexico, will you give me some work? And 
it's like, yeah, man, come on down. And, um, and so that's what kind of got things going. And so that spring we drove down, uh, Kate and I loaded up the truck and, and drove down to Southern Baja and brought our camper down there and like took it off our truck and like set it up in a vacant lot, like across from, from Jeff's house and spent the, the spring down there and guided a little bit, but enough to kind of, you know, makes make ends meet. And then went to Alaska, uh, guiding for my first summer. And that's what really, you know, got things started. And I think we did, I think six or seven springs down there, you know, and it, and it started off as just a, a way to go down and, you know, guide just enough to, to just hang out for a couple months to, you know, eventually we had our own little pop-up lodge down there. And gosh, I mean, I think the, the last year we were there, I mean, we were, we guided like almost three months straight. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to people who are listening and have no idea what rooster fish fishing is like, can you explain what happens because I mean, I'd seen it before. I think it was Frank Smethurst or one of those guys who had done it. And, and I remember being dumbfounded by it, but then I really started watching you and Kate because I just, I was seeing things I'd never seen before. I'm still, I'm still absolutely baffled by that fishery. So what happens? You, you watch the tide, I guess, and you just look for dark spots in the water. Like, do they have fins up? What are you looking for? From you know, from the beach side, because you're all, you're on foot, right? Yeah. Were you guys on foot the whole time? Pri- primarily, we we would do a little bit of fishing from the boat, um, but the best fishing, the most predictable fishing, and like the most exciting fishing is from the beach. You know, it's uh, I was thinking about this yesterday because I was lo- getting a, like a couple or the day before yesterday, getting a couple of things to send with Kate on her trip to Mexico because she's in Mexico right now, uh, fishing for bone fishing permit and it just kind of brought back a bunch of memories because I had all this gear and flies and stuff in our, in our shop. And I think fishing for rooster fish off the beach has got to be one of the, one of the coolest things. So the general deal is you've got to be able to see them and you're not super far South. Like you're not on the equator. Like your, your days are kind of short in the spring. I mean, they're, you know, you, you have a fair amount of sun, but like you, you the sun angle is like really only, high enough for good sight fishing from like about 10 o'clock to like four o'clock. Okay. Right. So it's like, a, it's a midday fishery. You want to fish when you can see and you're fishing over ideally over light color sand. And, and because of the, of the water there, you know, it's not flats fishing where you have just like long expansive flats everywhere. It's, it's an area where it's really calm in the spring, but it's really windy um, in the winter. And so when it's, as it's windy in the winter, you get all these waves, all these wind waves that build up and some areas of pretty significant berm along the beach. So because you have that berm, you're standing up, up on the berm and you're like, you know, 10 or more feet off the water. So you can see an incredible distance. You know, imagine like if you're in a flat skiff and you're like two feet off the the water, you can see a, a fair distance, but you can't see that far. Now, if you're on a polling platform, you can see even fall up even farther, but now like double or triple that and you can see miles out into the water, you know, uh, on either side. And so, so, so you're cruising down the beach, either walking or cruising on a four wheeler or or side by side. And you're looking for, for these individual fish or schools of them. And they tend to ride fairly high in the water column. And because that sun's really high over like a light sand, you, these fish show up. I mean, I mean, you can see fish, single fish, you can see fish two or 300 yards away. So you have like this incredible, distance that you're visually fishing, you know, compared to bonefish or something where you're like, okay, there's a fish at 150 feet at the most. Yeah. Um, so, 
So you're fishing this incredible distance and then you're trying to figure out where those fish are going to come within casting range. Uh, Okay. So you're not, you're not casting something out and trying to bring them back into you. So you can do that, but it, but what we learned was if there's single fish or like small groups of fish, you might be able to do that once, but rooster fish wise up really quickly. Okay. So, so, so what we found was if you started to, to throw teasers at singles or doubles, you would end up just wasting those fish. It was better to just hope those fish come, you know, within casting range. Um, but they don't always come within casting range. You know, they're, they're out in, in deeper water then they're following these channels and they might briefly come in and then go back out. Um, so you're looking for fish cruising around. Now, if you find schools of fish, then you can definitely tease those fish in. Um, but so you're cruising along and here's a fish and okay, I think it's going to come into this like slight, you know, depth change. And then you get on the shore and then now you're trying to, you know, make a long cast to where the fish is coming in and then you're fooling them. And it's like, like for me as an angler, it, it, it checks all these boxes, um, as, as an angler and also as a guide. So like as, as an angler and a fly tire, like your flies have to be like perfect and track perfectly. So if you have a fly that you're stripping and it, and it spins, the fish will refuse it. If it goes on its side, the fish will will refuse it. You know? So like I, if I've tied four or five flies in the morning, I might only get one or two of those flies to actually swim properly. Um, so like it really like scratches that like technical geek out kind of, you know, uh, thing that's like really fun to try to figure out how to like engineer flies that, that, that swim really well. Um, and then it also, if you're a good caster, you're going to have a lot more shots. Um, and especially if you're a good caster that can cast like on, on a back cast, cause there's almost always like some kind of a wind coming, uh, into your right side. So you're, you're like turning around and making back casts. And so if you're a good caster, you're going to have a lot more shots. And then like you have to be fairly athletic because a rooster's slowest speed is about our fastest walk. So they're always moving and like they can also be comfortably swimming, like happily swimming, like where you're like running. Like as fast. Is that why I always see people racing down the beach casting? For sure. It looks chaotic. What about with two-handed rods? Could you ever just do pick up and lay down cast with two-handed rods and big shooting it? So you can do it, but the problem is you, you can only get one shot, right? So like, like a lot of people like to use like quick loading lines, like a, like a 40 plus style, you know, shooting head. The problem is you pick it up and you pick it up and shoot it. And then if you want to pick it up again and recast, you have to strip all that line in to get the running line out. Right. So, uh, or the, the, the running line back in. So, so like a two hand rod will give you one chance at something, but oftentimes you a fish is traveling on one angle and then right before it gets to you, it changes direction. Right. So, so like you, you really need to be able to either pick up line quickly and reposition or change your angle. Uh, the feed's really important. Like if you, um, if you're, if, the, if a fish is coming one direction and all of a sudden you, you overcast and your fly is now coming at the fish, the fish is going to spook every time. Right. So, so you've got to like get, have your fly away from the fish and then traveling away from the fish before the fish realizes that it's there. And so there's all these different aspects to it that make it, you know, super technical. So it's really like a, you know, being able to make long casts, pick those casts up. And then also like not completely freak out when you get those shots, because like, you know, uh, Cause you, you see them coming from a long way away, but then like you might only, even if you, if you see 
20 or 30 fish in a day, you might actually only get five or six shots like on, on a good day. So you're really, really hyped up and, so, and you're also running, right? So you're like trying to manage your, like your breath and your adrenaline and all these different parts of it. And then still like make a good cast and then generally fishing big flies. So you're fishing like a five or six or eight inch fly with a wind to your shoulder, casting back backwards. And remember you have that, that berm going up the beach. So you're trying to make some kind of like a steeple ish cast to keep your, your fly high and not drag through the, through the sand. Cause if the fly hits the sand, the fly tumbles and fouls. And so all these things can go wrong. Yeah, no doubt. What did you find was the number one reason for your flies rolling? Um, just, uh, not having them balanced, you know, so like, like whether you're trimming some kind of a hair or you're uh, like adding like a uh, epoxy or softex or that kind of thing, like that you really have to have a very symmetrical fly. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So that's Mexico. So you guys do that for, it felt like forever, but so what, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, everything else is kind of a blur for me from there. You made a kick-ass boat. Oh yeah. Right. You made, you made that thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did. I, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Somewhere along the lines I've, I, I wanted to, I wanted to have, I wanted to build my own, but my goal was to build my own jet boat out of wood that then I could take with me to, to Northern BC to steelhead fish in the fall. Cause we were going and spending the spring in Mexico guiding in Alaska in the summertime. And then we would get back from Alaska and then spend like late October until basically freeze up in Northern BC. Yeah. You guys were living the dream. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We were. So are you still, let's talk about frigate. So from there, obviously it makes sense that the progression was going to be a travel company. Um, I, I mean, is that where you guys have landed now? Can we talk a little bit about frigate? Yeah. yeah and what absolutely. you guys do. And yeah, so we, you know, so we were doing this thing in Mexico. We had, you know, we had learned a lot about guiding and hosting working for, for Nancy in Alaska and just about how to run a lodge or, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so when we, um, when we were, were working in Mexico, you know, we were doing some, I was doing some uh, day trips and then thought, you know what, maybe, maybe we could do a little bit more, you know? So pretty early on, we started doing like a, a pop-up lodge there. So we you know, rented a house and you know, started hosting people and providing more than just the, just the guiding experience. Um, so pretty quickly we started doing, that there. And then we thought, well, gosh, we really want to, we could probably do that here in Oregon. So we started doing the same thing. So we started running a pop-up fishing lodge here um, on the Oregon coast. Um, This is actually, we just finished our 11th season um, here guiding in Oregon. And uh, so we started, started doing that and that started off slow. You know, the first season was like two weeks or booked two weeks and rented a house. And I remember the first year Kate cooked and I guided and we had another guy guide and Kate and I, you know, slept in our camper out, you know, <laughs> on the street in front of, of the house that we rented. And then the, the next season we did it for, you know, six weeks and then the next season for eight weeks. And then we, we finally grew and, and grew and grew and grew. And last year we actually bought our, our own lodge here. So we have this beautiful home um, just off of Tillamook Bay and it's, it's an, an amazing spot. And, and then we had an unfortunate thing happen with with our uh, Mexican 
operation and had a falling out with, with our business partner there. And it was a really sad time. That was in 2015. 2015 was like, it was like the worst year for us. We had this total disaster in Mexico. We had not planned on going to Alaska that summer at all. We were actually going to just guide down there from, from April through July. And because we had basically filled up our steelhead season and we're like, well, gosh, if we can just guide from, you know, January, like January through March in Oregon and then April through July in Mexico, like that might be enough. Um, and so when that fell apart, we're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? And spent, spent the summer working, um, like half the summer working at this little camp in Western Alaska. And, and, uh, it was interesting to say the least. And then that, that fall, actually Kate spent, that was the year that Kate spent like two months in BC and just still had fished a bunch. And I, I stayed in Alaska and worked. And, um, after that, we're like, you know what, maybe we could start our own business in Alaska. And, and we started talking about it more and more and we're like, okay, let's, let's do it. And so we did, we were like, we, like we bought a boat and had like two or three bookings for the summer. And we just jumped in without really much of a plan other than like, we think this will work. We think there's enough business to, to make it work. And just through a number of different really lucky circumstances, it ended up working out. And uh, that was five years ago. So this is going to be our sixth summer running our own business in, in King Salmon, Alaska. And now we have two other guides who work for us and we bought a house there two years ago. And it's like, it's been the coolest thing. Just like going from like what we felt was like losing everything to seeing, taking that opportunity to start over. And then it, it's turned out to be such a better, you know, turn of events and set us on a way better, more sustainable path. And it's just given us so much more opportunity. Yeah. Isn't it funny how pivoting like that can be so scary, but it's just, you look back, you know, a few years later and, and you wonder why you didn't see it before. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's been really hard and it's been stressful at times, but also it's been so rewarding to feel like We've always, I guess we, we always thought we, we, we always felt like we had something really cool to offer, especially with the, with the doing the pop-up lodge thing. And we always felt, you know, Kate and I felt like, like we were good, good guides and um, had a good sense of things and, and to take that and then grow our own business where we have other people working for us and really con- trying to con- continue the same sort of uh, ethic and same sort of work ideals and you know, working with guests and trying to give them the best pot, you know, possible experience. Like it's just, it's been great to get that positive uh, reinforcement. And like our business has been almost completely word of mouth. Uh, I mean, we're going to be, I think we're going to be at a hundred percent capacity this summer, which is just mind boggling to think that, you know, starting off six years ago, we had like three bookings <laughs> going into the season. Um, and like we were completely full during our steelhead season. We have a waiting list and uh, it's like, it is just incredible. Do you guys still do trips to Christmas Island? Cause when I went to Christmas Island with you guys, that was one of, that was a hosted trip through you guys, right? Mm-hmm. It was incredibly well run and super organized. I was, was in my first trimester. So I was, everything is a little bit hazy because I wasn't feeling very well, but it was an incredibly well organized trip. So do you guys do a, a lot of destination or do you, have you kind of scaled back? 
Yeah, yeah. We we've really been doing less and less hosting the last couple of years. And I think a big a big part of that is we've been putting so much effort into growing our business in Alaska and continuing to, to grow our steelhead business and and to really focus on things that are are more sustainable as far as like you know financially sustainable it's not to say that that we're that we won't continue to keep doing hosted trips but but at this point we re we really just try to you know whittle things down to focus on things that are that you know give us a little, little bit more you know bang for our buck and um and then too like it's really easy as you know with as a fishing guide i mean, i, I talk to guys all the time. They're like, Oh yeah, I, I just book every day and I fish every single day and you know, all this stuff. And before you know it, like all you're doing is just, it's just working. And so, uh, I mean, there was a, a number of years there where we like, we were like really close to like 200 days and it was, and it, it was, it was too much. And so, and so really now, like we're trying to spend more time um, in our off season being in our off season. So like Kate's on vacation in Mexico right now on a non-work trip and we're going to be in the keys uh, on a, you know, non-work trip, just a fun trip. And so we're trying to, to do more of that, but then also like, you know, when the right group comes along and the right opportunity comes along, you know, maybe do a hosted trip here and there. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So the hosted, I actually didn't know that. I thought you guys were still focused primarily on hosting, but I guess not actually in taking a deeper look, you guys have, yeah, you're, lodge owners. Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> how how exciting. Yeah. So something that I've always been really interested in um and that I've always really admired you guys both for is your conservation work. Obviously in Alaska, Kate's always been at the front of that. I just think she does a great job with that. But also with Oregon, I'm selfishly wondering how do you manage you know, stepping up to bat for conservation issues in two different parts of the world. And I'm asking just because being here in Australia, obviously I try to do what I can in BC and then I'm down here and I just get really overwhelmed. Do you guys, do you end up facing that or is it a little bit different because it's the same country? No, I, th I think being overwhelmed is, is a great way to, to describe it. I mean, I think whether it's conservation or whatever it is that you get, become like passionate about it's so easy to go in and just be totally overwhelmed i mean i could like look around like i look out the like the window here and i look at like massive clear cuts like across the bay and tillamook bay and you know know that like right up all the rivers there's like crazy clear cutting and all these like horrible you know timber practices and all this different kind of stuff um but i think it makes it easier because of the experience that we've had in Alaska and in the experience that we've had around the pebble mine and getting people on board and seeing people from all different walks of life become totally amazed with the place and then go, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like we, we really do need to protect this. And so that's what gives me hope about trying to make, you know, small changes here, even though it feels like we're not making, it feels like we're not getting anywhere. You know, you start talking to people that have been in the conservation world here in the Pacific Northwest for, you know, 20 or 30 years, like, oh my gosh, like, it feels like we're not getting, like we're not getting anywhere. Um, but things take, take time and you never know who you're going to talk to or who you're going to take down the river. That's going to become the next person that gives you a new idea or they know someone and they know someone and all of a sudden you can actually make real change. So I think trying to tempt to like temper expectations and 
have try to try to separate it a separate it out a little bit. You know, it's like like I know that there's going to be certain people that I'm going to be able to talk to you about things, and some some people are just not going to be receptive to it. Like some people just want to go fishing, you know. Um, but like like it's a really cool thing when you can you know bring up casually a little history about the area or what's going on and what, you know, what kind of work needs to be done. And then you have a guest perk up and they're like, well, tell me more about that, you know? And then you start talking about that and they're like, well, what can I do? You know, who can I, who can I work with on this? You know, where can I donate money to or that kind of thing? Or how could I get involved? And, and like, it's that kind of stuff that I think helps kind of keep the fire burning a little bit. Yeah. I think I forgot. It's been so long since I've guided. I think that I just forgot about those conversations. Cause you're right. That's exactly what happens. You're out there and something really, something really will bother them and they want to know more about it. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's like, you know, from someone that went from just personally spending as much possible time as I could fishing on my own. Cause I just wanted it and I wanted to see it and I want to learn, learn about it and I want to figure out about it and all these different things. I mean, like I still, I still have all those parts, uh, you know, with me, but like you, just over time. And like, I think we've talked about this a little bit, like you, you can just, you like have these goals and you want to do these things and then you do this kind of stuff. And then you're like, okay, now what's, you know, what's the next thing. Um, and then that next thing happens. And like, one of the things I love about, about being a guide and about getting to spend time with fantastic people from all over the country, you know, on an, any given week is just getting to know people and having relationships with them. And I mean, I spend more time with, like my guests than I do with any of my friends, any of my family. But when, when Kate and I actually finally got married a couple of years ago or three years ago, um, like our wedding party, like our people, like it was split between like our friends, our family and our guests. And it was like, it was like almost equal, which is crazy, you know? And it was so cool to be like, Hey, look, this is so-and-so like, like I spent, you know, three weeks with them last year, you know, and, you know, meet my brother or whatever. And, um, and it, like that's one of the, the most wonderful parts of about it. Yeah. How scary is it in today's world starting or in today's age, starting a steelhead operation? I've been seeing a lot of, even some of our mutual friends have started to go into, you know, maybe trout guiding for trout or, or guiding in the salt water. Cause it's an unpredictable future. Was it scary for you guys making that move in specifically in Oregon? Well, so when we started, it didn't feel really scary. I mean, because we were already just doing it on our own all, all the time. And so we just didn't think anything, we didn't think anything of it. Um, but it's really gotten scary the last couple of years. I mean, this, this season was, was by far the worst season that we've ever seen. And I think most people that we've talked to have ever seen, you know, um, and it's Oregon, Washington into California, you know, sounds like BC was, was, pretty tough this fall. So it's, it's super, super scary. Um, it's, uh, you know, the thing that gives me hope is steelhead are super resilient. And if we can just give them any chance, they're going to make it. I mean, that's what makes them so amazing is you have this fish that's like super unique and super adapted. And, and like there's fish that spend one year in the ocean to three or four or five years in the ocean and you have repeat spawners and all these different kind of things. So I, th- I feel like as long as we can give them a chance, they're going to be able to, to, to hang on. And hopefully, um, you know, hopefully things are going to improve. I mean, I think a, a big part of what we've been dealing with, you know, outside of our big, 
um, environmental issues and our big, uh, you know, habitat issues is, you know, there's some really funky things going on in the ocean, you know? So what we saw this season is we saw like some really, really small fish. And then we saw really, really big fish. So we, so we were basically just missing the whole like middle age class, which typically makes up the bulk of our run. So that like, to me, that says like something's going on in the ocean, right? So it's not like it wiped out all of them. It just wiped out whatever that middle age class was, or they're out there and we'll see that, you know, we might see more of those next years. So I, I don't know, but it's, it's really concerning for sure. That it's like, like we're fishing and what happens if there's just no fish anymore or our seasons get closed down or, you know, fill the blank. Yeah. Have you guys thought about that? I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, the Washington boat closure, the fishery wasn't closed, but obviously that regulation change was, was a huge deal for a lot of people. Have you thought about what you're going to do if the Oregon for some reason decides not to open up steelhead one one year or are you guys just pretty relaxed and you'll roll with it when it happens? Yeah. I think if it happens, yeah, I think we're, we're going to roll with it, you know, one way or another. I mean, um, and I, and yeah, I guess I'm just really hoping that that, 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 that doesn't happen, but it's also, um, that's why we're trying to, you know, continue to grow and build our Alaska business. Um, you know, it's, I, th- I feel like the last couple of years, especially I've really been, coming to realize how amazing it is in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Um, I mean, I've been going up there for 20 years now and, and I just took it for granted, you know, just like when you go somewhere over and over again, you just take it for granted, but it's like going somewhere that is completely wild. There's really no more development now than there was 20 years ago when I started. And there's not much more development now than there was 50 years ago. So so it's like really something that I've just been realizing more and more about how how great of a place it is. And it, we're just kind of lucky that, you know, we're so far north. We're a little bit insulated as as climate changes and things warm up. We've got a little bit of a of, of a buffer there, even though it is still changing. Alaska is experiencing, hot, you know, warmer than ever summers and winters have been a lot more more mild, though this year, last year, getting somewhat more back to normal, but still not normal for the average. So I don't know. I think, I, I think if, if that's the case, we're just going to have to cross that bridge, you know, when we get there um, and see what happens. I mean, we're, we feel really fortunate that as we've developed our steelhead business, it's, it's really been about it's, you know, fishing is one, one part of it, but it's, it's about staying at a nice place and eating great food. And it's about the experience of going fishing rather than you know, the end result of we're going to catch a bunch of fish every day um, because we've got, you know, friends that that's their business. And it's been really hard as fishing has slowed down. People are going, well, gosh, I don't know if I want to go fish if, if I'm not going to catch one or if I'm only going to catch one or something where that's kind of been our, our mentality all along, even though we do have some some really good days from from time to time. Um, we feel feel like we've you know set up our, our guests as long as the rivers are still open to fish. You know, people are going to be happy as long as you know, we have a shot here and there. As a lodge owner, how do you set those expectations? Because that's a very good point. And I noticed that when we were speaking about the the Washington boat closures on a different podcast episode. And I, and I felt like a lot of the contention there was just lack of communication with guides or different expectations. There are all these cancellations because people 
well, the expectations, right? We must catch fish. So how do you trying to run a sustainable company in, in the way that you'll, you know, you'll remain in business? How do you kind of seed that into your customer? Can you do it when they book or do you have to do it once they're there? Yeah. So, so thankfully, thankfully the majority of our guests now I've been returning for years. I mean, we have a number of people that fished with us our first year that we did this and are still fishing with us now, you know, 11 years later, but we definitely get new, new people, um, that, that fill in, you know, every year. And so at, at the time of booking is really when we discuss realistic expectations, you know, so, so we try to re- realistically give them an idea of what to expect. Um, and so that way, if it's, if it's better then that's great, but if it's not, it's also like, you know, it's, we're, we're not too far off. And, so, so this year, for example, I mean, this was our worst season ever. We caught the, the smallest amount of fish, but I think I can say pretty confidently that, that this was a year we had the highest guest satisfaction that, we, that we've ever had. Um, and I think part of that is we've now we have this this beautiful space for people to stay in. Our chef this year, Chef Jason Brown, was absolutely incredible. We did twelve weeks. He did not make the same meal twice. <gasps> It's freaking, That's fun to shop for. <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, it was, it was like just unbelievable. I and mean, he was just like blew it, just blew it out of the water. So, so, you know, we, we also this year, we, because the fishing was slow, we, we, we really changed our, the way that we approached our daily fishing experience. Um, so instead of going early, grinding out with other boats and anglers and like, you know, working and okay, we, we got to get out there to go, you know, get our chance. We just slowed everything down. We had breakfast late, we left late and it just set like a really kind of a slower pace. And it just set a tone that like, Hey guys, like we're going to go out when, when we go out, like, what's the rush? This is your vacation. And let's have that extra cup of coffee and we're going to go fish casually. And it turned out that we, caught just as many or not as many as the people that were going out, you know, an hour before first light and people loved it. It was really, really a fun experience. And even though I feel like we, we, we know this, that there's so much more to fishing than just catching. Um, it was just a great reminder that, that you can go and have a great time and not be just absolutely focused on, on the end result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good idea, slowing it down. Because you're right, if you're frantic, got to get out there, got to beat everybody. It just sets this pace, right? That you're going to be having this go, go, go kind of day. And then you get out there and you're like, well, what was the rush? I could have had that second cup of coffee. Okay, so I'll wrap this up, but real, just real talk for one sec. So Joe Blow contacts you or Jane Doe contacts you and says, I am going to leave my job tomorrow and I'm going to get into the fishing industry. And I want to do what you're doing. What's the first thought that flashes through your head? Well, yeah, I, I would I would ask him. Well, what job is it that you're quitting? <laughs> first of all, <laughs> and uh, and and you know, what are your expectations on on you know what you think you're going to get out of it? But it's like, yeah, like yeah, I, I would I would I would ask them what do they want out of it? Because being a fishing guide, being a lodge owner, is one of the greatest things I've ever done but it's also not for everyone. And, and it's, it's a lot of work, you know, it is a lot of work. Like they're super long days and all this stuff. I mean, everyone knows all all the stories, but, um, 
it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's hard. It's hard to get ahead, but that's okay too. You know, um, and if, if, if someone wants to do it, I would definitely recommend, I mean, I think like the, like low hanging fruit is to take a similar path, go get a job in Alaska, go work at a lodge, go work at a camp. There's always opportunity there. You know, go get your Coast Guard license and, and, and go try it out for, go try it out for summer, go work for someone else who's going to, who's going to already have the bookings for you. Who's going to keep you busy, you know, keep you working and that kind of stuff. And then see how that goes and goes from there. What are your thoughts on guide responsibility to giving back to the environment? It was something I always just assumed that guides did. I just assumed every guide gave back, but I'm quickly learning that's not the case. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, it's definitely not the case. I mean, I think, I think it's really easy for guides just to become takers. You know, everyone's just trying to take their part of it or, you know, trying to get their share. And I think, I think that if, if, if more guides would, would get involved in, in trying to, you know, help the fisheries they're in or getting, you know, trying to, uh, ease their impact, then we would have a, you know, we would be a lot, a lot better off if, if for no other reason, people would just be more familiar with what's going on around them, you know? Um, cause that's like, that's been the one thing that's kind of surprised me about like working in this area is just the, there's a real lack of understanding of, of what's happening in your, in your, in your fishery, in, in your watershed, what's going on? Like, why are the fish runs the way they are? You know, how many fish are even there? You know, like, like as, as fishermen, it's really easy to just get wrapped up into what's happening, like in our own boat and like, Oh, well, fishing was good today. Fishing was bad today. If we caught one, we didn't catch one, but, but like, I think there's a lot more to be understood, you know, and that's one thing I love just geeking out about all the different, you know, scientific aspects of it and trying to understand the biology and all that kind of stuff, but also understand like, what are the impacts, you know, that are happening around us and what can we do to fix them? I mean, I I definitely wish there was more, more guides involved. So where can people find you? I'll wrap it up and let you make your long trip today. Yeah. So if uh, people want to book with us and uh, visit us in Bristol Bay, Alaska, or come fish with us on the Oregon coast, our website is frigatetravel.com. Frigate Travel, not a super good name for a business that operates in Oregon and Alaska, uh, but but we uh, named it when we were spending a lot more time in Mexico and all these other places. So that might be changing someday. But yeah, Frigate Travel. I think it works. I, I still think that it works. I think it's a great name. Thanks. Is there anything that I've missed? I mean, I know there's a ton to your story that we haven't covered, but in an, in an, you know in summary, is there anything that I've missed that you'd like to add or to ask me? I don't think so. I think we're good. Well, thank you so much for making the time. And yeah, we'll just stay in touch. And I'm excited to see what you and Kate have going next. Thanks, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Join us for our next episode when I sit down with Phil Rowley. Oh, 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 oh,